Well, we're in Luke chapter 2, verses uh, 39 to 52 again. And Luke uh, is recounting under the influence of the Holy Spirit what he regards as the most important facts about Jesus' life before his public ministry. You'll notice that it goes from birth until 12 years old. And this is the only event that is recorded in Jesus' life other than his, his birth. These are the only words that we have recorded that Jesus uttered before his, his earthly ministry. And so what Luke is doing is he's building an identity. He's, he's, he's telling recipients who Jesus is. He's making the case that Jesus is God in the flesh, the eternal Son of God incarnated in the flesh. And so with that, let's stand together as we read Luke chapter 2, verses 39 to 52. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. I'll stop. Remember, this is the end of the birth narrative and everything that we had talked about with the birth narrative. And the child grew and became strong and filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now, if you remember last week, I said this is the, the brackets. There's, this is the first one. Verse number 52 is the second one. This part of the bracket covers... It basically summarizes Jesus' life from birth until 12 years old. Verse number 52 summarizes Jesus' life from 12 years old until his adult ministry began. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group... They went a day's journey, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw, they, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great uh, distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Something I'm not going to point out in the sermon, I'll point out here. You'll notice in the previous verse, she said, Your father and I. And he turns around without being disrespectful and saying, No, I'm, I'm in my father's house that's not my father. You'll notice that he does that in a, in a very gentle way. And he went uh, down with them. Let me find my placement. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage of Scripture we thank you for Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We thank you for uh, Luke's recording of it. Now I pray that uh, the Holy Spirit will speak to our hearts and help us to uh, understand more clearly who you are. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you very much. Well, I mentioned last week that his parents traveled in a caravan. As a matter of fact, I think the ESV uh, translates the word caravan as, as group, but if you look at other translations, it's the word tra uh, caravan. And suppose that Jesus was with them. These caravans could, they could number 
in, in the hundreds of people traveling in a caravan, and many times these groups of people that left together were from the same village. So the particular caravan that Mary and Joseph and supposedly Jesus were, was in was most likely the caravan that was going to Nazareth. Everybody traveled together. Everybody in the little village knew each other. The kids all knew each other. There were lots of families together, and they were traveling together. And so most likely they went down from Jerusalem towards Jericho, about a day's journey down to Jericho. And that evening as they're settling in, all the kids start going to their parents' place. They realize Jesus isn't with them. And so they get up the next morning. They walk back up to Jerusalem, and that's a pretty grueling hike. If you've ever been over there, you know what I mean by that. And then by the time that trip is over, it's the end of that day. So they sleep overnight. The next morning they get up, and they go searching for Jesus in the temple, and they find him. And that is how Luke says, after the, the third day. Now, Luke's language indicates that Jesus was now of fully understanding. He fully had the, the mind of God. He had developed to the point where his understanding was complete. And since he had lived his life with no sin, the Bible says that God's favor was upon him. Not only that, but if you think about it, since his mind was not hindered by sin nature, he desired the Word of God. You'll notice that. The man without sin... More than anything else, the boy, 12 years old, wanted to be around the Word of God. And there is a, a principle there that we need to remember as Christians. And the principle is this. There is an inverse relationship between the sin in our life and our desire to see God. Christians are those who are growing to be more like Christ, but Christians' growth is like this, is it not? And so there are times when it, sin will be in our heart and our desire for God, our desire to see Jesus, our thirst for His Word wanes. And then when, when we repent and we come out of that sinful time and we begin to seek Christ anew, what happens in our heart? There's a desire to know God even to a greater degree. That thirst is, is greater. And so there's an inverse relationship there. Notice with me verse number 47. Verse number 47. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Now, remember, most likely the way it, it worked we know that the great teachers from around the Roman Empire would come at Passover, come to the temple. They would set up shop after the, after the feast, the seven-day feast period of unleavened bread after the Passover. And they would teach. And they always sat down. And there would be groups of people around listening to them. So in the temple complex, there were these groups of people. And so Mary and Joseph were walking through and they found the group where Jesus was. And the Bible says that here's this 12-year-old boy and all the people around him are amazed at his understanding and his answers. Now, it's, it seems he, he's not there to be taught. He, it, it seems that he's listening to how they understand the truth about God. And he has a consuming desire 
to know more and more about God. He has a hunger for discussing the truth of God. I love being around people that love to talk about Scripture and talk about the Lord. And I'm sure you do too. And later on in his earthly ministry, he would ask them questions that they couldn't answer because Jesus, being God, cut right through their hypocrisy and right through the um, unbelief of their heart and got to the point. But you'll notice their reaction. What was their reaction in verse number 47? The Bible says that they they were amazed. This word amazed means to be out of your mind, to to lose your senses. In other words, they were beside themselves with the answers that this 12-year-old boy was given, giving. They were, they were amazed. They, they were just completely blown away by the, the, the questions that he was asking. And this word is used a lot of times about Jesus' miracles. For example, in, in Matthew chapter 12 and verse number 23, in all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? And this is a reaction to one of his miracles. They were amazed after he cast out the demon here. Uh, The disciples expressed amazement when he calmed the sea and he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased and they were utterly astounded. Same word there. But in in Luke, um, and and so there's this amazement at at what Jesus did uh, in his miracles But in the next verse, in Luke chapter 2 and verse number 48, there's another word. And it says, when Mary and Joseph saw him, the Bible says that they were astonished. Now this is a a different word. It's not the same word. This word means to cast off with a blow, or um, it it means to to be blown away. it's, It's to be completely shocked. Today we would say, I was blown away by that. Uh, interestingly enough, where the previous word that I talked about, amazed, is used of Jesus' miracles, this word astonished, where it says they were astonished at Jesus, is used almost exclusively about his teaching. For example, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which is the first recorded public sermon of Jesus, right? He teaches that whole Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and seven, you get to the end of it, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds, they were astonished at his teaching. Same thing in his hometown of Nazareth, when he taught in his home synagogue. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? And how, how is it that mighty works are done with his hands? And so they're astonished at his teaching. His last week uh, before his crucifixion, he spent that week sparring with the religious leaders. As a matter of fact, I want you to turn here. Turn to Matthew 22. And I want you to turn here because this, it's just, it's funny to me in a way, okay? And you'll see what I mean. Matthew 22, I think it's right around verse number 23. These religious leaders, they've been peppering him for a week about about everything, trying to get him tripped up. And here comes the Sadducees. And, and what the, Matthew notes about the Sadducees is they don't believe in the resurrection. And what does it say they do? They come with a completely ridiculous story. Now, it's based upon Leverite marriage. I don't know if you're familiar with Leverite marriage. Leverite marriage is 
the, the, the law, and it wasn't just with Israel, it was with other nations as well, other people groups. If, if a woman married a man and he died childless, then his brother would marry her and have children, and those children would carry his name. That was the idea. So the, the Sadducees, they come up with this ridiculous story. This woman marries a guy, no kids, he dies, so she marries a brother. He dies without kids, and it continues through seven brothers. Now what are they doing? They are making a complete mockery of the resurrection. They are mocking because they knew Jesus taught the resurrection, right? They knew he did. And they're, they, are, they are thinking to themselves, we're coming up with a story, storyline, and it's going to make this guy look like a complete fool. And what does Jesus do? He takes them right to Scripture, doesn't he? And he, he takes them right to the, 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 the point of their unbelief and shows them their unbelief. And the reaction is then, in verse number 33, and when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. And so the question is, what, I went over these two words, the question is, why all the wonder and the amazement? Why all the wonder and amazement when Jesus taught, when Jesus performed miracles? Answer is, that is the reaction of men in the flesh when they encounter God. Right? Wonder and amazement. You see, you'll see what I mean as we work our way through the passage. Back to verse number 48 of Luke chapter number 2. His, his parents found him, verse number 48, and his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Have you ever wondered, where did Jesus sleep for those three days? Where did he eat? I'm sure he, did he have money? I, I, I don't know where he ate. I don't know where he got something to, to, or where he slept or anything. I don't know that he even cared about these things. Remember at the beginning of his public ministry, what did he do? He went 40 days and nights out into the wilderness to do what? To commune with the Father, right? Fast and pray. I don't know that these things matter to him even at 12 years old. What 12-year-old boy do you know that isn't concerned about food, <laughs> right? And then, then he told his disciples one time, he said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. His focus was on Scripture. His mother wasn't very impressed, though. She scolded him in the typical mom fashion, didn't she? Look at what she said. Why have you treated us this way? Isn't that, isn't that just like a mom? Why are you doing this to me? Why are you treating me this way? She uses that, and then, then she uses that power phrase, your father and I. You're always in trouble when you hear your father and I, right? Well, I don't think Jesus intended to be um, mistreating her or treating her inappropriately, but she was distressed. The, the, word she, the, the word the ESV translates distress is an intense form uh, some translations say we have been anxiously looking. That doesn't do the word justice. It's, it's a word that means that literally to suffer. It means to be tormented uh, or to cause intense pain. 
They were tormented. They were painfully worried about their 12-year-old son. That's the kind of distress. Now, that's what she described herself as. Does this remind you of anything we've already read in Luke? I want to show you something. Turn back to verse number 35. Verse number 35. Do you remember what Simeon told Mary? He said, a sword will pierce your own soul. And here Mary is beginning to experience the sword. The distress, and then he turns around and says, this is my father's house. And it's only going to intensify, it's only going to grow. And his response, which we'll cover in the next verse, shows that he's already beginning to make a break from his earthly family. And he had to do this because he was sent to do the will of his father, wasn't he? Well, let's go to that next verse, verse number 49. This is the climax of the whole passage. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? These are the first recorded words of Jesus. They're, they're the only recorded words of Jesus before his earthly ministry. And this, this intimate expression was totally new. Nobody had ever heard this. What am I talking about? In the Old Testament, no doubt the fatherhood of God was a concept that people in Israel were familiar with. There are at least a dozen places where Scripture refers to God as the Father. However, those who spoke of God as the Father always used the plural and they said, Our Father. Our Father. But no one had ever called him my Father. No one had ever called him my Father. God's paternity was more a general concept than a personal relationship. Even like men, even men like Moses and David, who enjoyed a special intimacy with God, never dared to claim that God was their father. But Jesus said it as if it was the most natural thing in the world. If the temple was God's house, then it was his father's house. Remember, we must remember that the Israelites viewed the temple as a place, that was God's house, that's where he lived. That's where, with the tabernacle and Solomon's temple, you saw the cloud of glory come down. God was manifesting his presence and, and he dwelt with them in the temple. And because Jesus knew that God was his father, he told his parents, I must be in my father's house. And so with that confession... Jesus made crystal clear, this 12-year-old boy made crystal clear with everyone who he was. And he takes himself out from under his earthly parents. And he places himself in the divine realm and places himself under the will and authority of God as true Father. Magnificent passage. Now do you know why Luke chose this? of all the events of his childhood, with he is saying God is well, let me, let me just say this. I am coming to do God's will. He's saying the force 
controlling everything in my life is God. His parents need to understand that, and so does everyone else need to understand it. If you understand this concept, then you're going to understand the flow of Luke, and you're going to understand the flow of all the other Gospels, because this culminated in the execution of Jesus Christ. What was it? This is the main thing that we need to understand. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. You have to understand that. Now with that comes an understanding of what Son of God means. Let's just look at a few verses. In Luke chapter 1, in verse number 35, Gabriel said to Mary, The child to be born will be called holy, what? The Son of God. Mark begins his gospel, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. John said, and I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. And those in the boat worshipped him and said, truly, you are the Son of God. Martha told Jesus in John 11, Yea, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God. Now, for us, we're used to hearing that phrase, Son of God, aren't we? And so, what do we think of when we think of Son of God? It's, it's like, um, I have my, my son Jordan is here. He's right over there. Um, he's still awake. No, I'm just kidding you. Um, but my son Jordan's over there. He's my son, right? And so we think in terms of I am my father's child. Uh, my mother begat me and that sort of thing. But you have to understand the Hebrew concept of son. And it wasn't this. There are definite words used to describe the growth of Hebrew children. Matthew uses them. I'll point them out later on. Infant, then child, then boy. And now we see in Luke chapter 2 that when a child becomes an adult, he becomes a son. And so it was the time when the son became equal to his father under the law. And so son came to mean equal to or one with. <coughs> it's, it's of the same essence. It's the essential character. I want to walk us through Scripture so you can see exactly what I'm talking about. This will make it crystal clear when he says Son of God what he's actually saying. For example, in Acts chapter number 4, in verse number 36, we meet a man named Joseph. And it says this, who also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means what? Son of encouragement. Now, does that mean that his dad's name was encouragement? No. What is it doing? It's describing his what? His, his character, right? How about Ephesians 2.2? In Ephesians 2.2, every single lost person is called sons of disobedience it means you are one with or equal to disobedience your your character is that of disobedience in in john chapter 12 um, he calls believers 
sons of light. And it doesn't mean anything about origins. It doesn't mean anything about birth or generation. It simply means that if you are in Christ, you have the characteristics of truth and life. You see? But let's, let's continue. In Matthew 23, 15, Matthew, or Jesus is uh, uh, pronouncing woes upon the Pharisees, and he calls the followers of the Pharisees sons of hell. It, it doesn't mean that hell gave birth to the individual. It simply means that this person has all the characteristics of someone who will occupy hell. You see? In, um, in Matthew 12, in verse number 38, it says the tares, which are false believers in the church, are called sons of the evil one. When he's talking about the wheat and the tares. And this, this, um, this is not that they are offspring of Satan in some strange, bizarre fashion, but rather they are identifying with Satan's character. They are literally equal to or one with. Satan's a liar, they're liars. Satan's a deceiver, they're deceivers. Satan hates God, they hate God. You see what I'm saying? They're sons of the evil one. And one more. This, we got to end on a positive note, don't we? We have to. And so we go to Luke chapter 20 and verse number 36, and we see the believers are called sons of the resurrection. Sons of the resurrection has nothing to do with origins. It has nothing to do with offspring. It has nothing to do with generation. It has to do with the fact that our character is identified with the resurrection. We are resurrection people. Isn't that wonderful? We have resurrection life. We're characterized by the resurrection. And so, though your outer body dies, you will never die. Because you will enter the glory of God, the glory of the Lord. You are already possessor of the resurrection, and so you are a son of the resurrection. That resurrection life is your character. What a wonderful blessing it is to be called the sons of the resurrection, isn't it? And I'm really hoping that the resurrection life has not so much snow and cold weather, too. <laughs> but that's, that's just a tiny sampling of passages. Now, why did I take this long detour? I took this long detour because when Jesus said, I must be in my Father's house, he is clearly identifying himself as the Son of God, the only begotten, the one who will receive the inheritance, the one who is equal with God. Remember the Hebrew concept, you're equal. This is your essential character. He is calling himself God. That is the most important thing that we can understand that Jesus is doing here. So do not let anyone tell you that Jesus is inferior to God. Do not let anybody tell you that, that he's the firstborn of God. That's not what that term means. He's equal with God. He's God in the flesh, not the first created being, not inferior to the Father. He's equal to and one with the Father. Knowing that, doesn't the next verse blow you away? Look at verse number 50. What was his parents' reaction 
and they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. What Christ said was so profound at the age of 12 that it was beyond their grasp. That Christ is God in the flesh is so profound that we're still trying to figure this out. Do you have a mastered? Last week, when I was talking about Jesus' development, his, his mental and physical development, how is it that the all-knowing God, the omniscient God, developed like every other boy? It's beyond me. It's beyond you too, isn't it? This is the pattern of Christ's ministry. In Luke 9.44, Jesus said, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But the disciples, they didn't, they, it didn't sink into their ears. They didn't understand. And it says, but they didn't understand the saying. It was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they're afraid to ask him about this saying. Now look at verse number 51 of Luke chapter number 2. And this is mind-blowing to me. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. What does this verse say? For the next 18 or so years, he submitted to his parents. I was, I was reading a commentator the, the other day, uh, last week, and he said, can you imagine how many stupid conversations he had to listen to? <laughs> I mean, think, think with me for just a minute. He is the Son of God. He has a perfect mind. He knew the truth. But he was surrounded by people, including his own parents, whose understanding was absolutely darkened, right? We have light, but the Bible says that we see through a glass darkly. Our understanding, how, how did he keep from rolling his eyes? I can't even believe it. You know, whatever, whatever they happen to see. He was tempted the way children are tempted. At, at 12 years old, he knew that he knew more than his parents. Typical teenager, right? <laughs> no, he actually did know more than his parents, didn't he? He understood more than his parents. He was tempted the way children are tempted, to be selfish and impatient and to have trivial and superficial thoughts to be disrespectful and so forth and so on. He was tempted the way young people are tempted and the way adults are tempted. And as I said, for 18 years, knowing the answer to everything, he must have been tempted to be impatient with the stupidity around him. Now, teenagers, let me talk to you. Are you tempted to roll your eyes at the stupidity around you? Can I tell you something? Your parents are way smarter than you think they are. And when you get a little bit older, you're going to learn how smart they actually are when you find out you don't have all the answers. But actually, what I'm trying to tell to the teenagers, in all seriousness, is Jesus was submissive to his parents in everything. He was the Son of God. You know what he deserved? He came from the throne in heaven where everybody was exalting him, to Nazareth, where his mom said, 
take out the garbage, go do the chores. And he did not deserve any of that. He deserved nothing but glory. So teenager and child, be submissive to your parents because Jesus was, and he's your perfect pattern. And I'll say this, one more thing. The pattern of our lives is the same as Jesus. He was submissive to his father's will, to his parents' will, and when he went to heaven, he received glory. And the Bible says that we will follow that pattern and we will receive glory as well. He was tempted, wasn't he? The Bible says in Hebrews 4.15, he was tempted in every respect as we are, yet without sin. And it had to be, didn't it? He had to face temptation after temptation to learn what obedience was. This is the only way for him to secure our salvation. Matter of fact, Hebrews talks about he had to learn through suffering. He had to learn obedience through suffering. Finally, we come to the other bookend I mentioned last week. Look at verse number 52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. This, this statement summarizes his life from age 12 until he began his earthly ministry around the age of 30, uh, uh, most likely somewhere around 33 is when he began his ministry. But he increased. He increased in wisdom and, and in stature. That word increased meant he kept growing. It's, it's, the, it's a word that describes a ship moving forward when they set sail and the wind blows it along. It's an intentional act. It's intentional progress. Jesus didn't waste time. He wouldn't spend hours on TikTok, Instagram, and all that sort of stuff, right? He wouldn't waste his time on Fox News, and I have to hit the older people too, right? CNN and all that other stuff. He was intentional. I mentioned that Luke uses words of progress to describe Jesus. He first refers to this in chapter number 2, in verse number 16. He calls Jesus an infant. Brephos is the word. Chapter number 2, verse number 40, Jesus is Pidon, which is a little child. In verse number 43, he's uh, Pace, which is a child. And finally, in chapter 2, in verse number 52, he's no longer a, a Brephos. He's no longer a, a Pidon. He's no longer a Pace. He is Jesus. He is a man. He has reached full adulthood. He grew spiritually, physically, intellectually, and socially. And it's a mystery. And we will only comprehend bits of it. But I want to leave you with this. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He's God in the flesh. And if you understand this and believe it, then you understand the gospel. Right? But if you do not believe it, then it doesn't matter what you believe, you cannot be saved. Because there is salvation, there is no salvation in any other name. Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and when we confess Him as Lord,
view him as Lord, submit to him as Lord, and trust him as Lord, his finished work on the cross, then we have salvation. Lord, I thank you for this passage in Luke that um, shows us a a brief uh, event in in his uh, growing up years, Lord, and it's a profound accounting of of um, Jesus' life in such a way that we know beyond doubt that He is God in the flesh. I pray, Lord, that You will give us a thirst for Your Word and understanding Your Word and growing in Your Word. I pray that You will give us a Christ likeness, a a wonder and an amazement at Christ, a love for Christ that surpasses all of our understanding, that will increase in, in knowledge of Him, and that we will be confident in our salvation. And that being confident, Lord, we will also be conformed to the image of His death and resurrection life. I pray for those who do not understand who Jesus is, that you will clear their understanding and give them new life in Jesus Christ. In his name, amen.